Welcome to the Mercy Hill Church Podcast. This podcast is a collection of sermons and conversations intended to stir up your affections for Jesus. We hope this content helps you know and tell the story of Jesus better. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Brandon. I am one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. Uh, if you have visited uh, maybe for the first time over the past couple of weeks, you're like, who is this guy? All right. I haven't been up here in several weeks, but it's great to see you guys. Of course, we just got uh, back uh, from overseas, a uh, team from our church um, visiting one of uh, missionaries we've sent out from our church who's serving in Central Asia. Uh, and so we got to meet her team, uh, see what God is doing there. It was incredible. Uh, I wish I could tell you more about it this morning, uh, but we'll have to talk about it more at a different time. Sound good? Good, good. If you've got a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to pick up in verse 22. Uh, if you have looked ahead at all, uh, you know uh, that this is a text uh, that is explosive in a lot of ways. Uh, it's a text about uh, God's plan for the family, in particular, a relationship between a husband and wife. And so I'm just going to guess today that you don't need me to give you some sort of creative hook, all right, to tell you some funny story so that you lean in and want to pay attention uh, I'm just going to imagine today uh, that you're just ready to get to it. I'm ready to get to it, so let's get to it. Sound good? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Here's what he says. Paul, writing to the church in Ephesus, uh, he says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, I let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. There are obviously two ditches whenever we come to a text like this. Uh, two problems, two issues. The first issue is that it's just not culturally popular. Uh, it cuts against a multitude of cultural idols in Western society. From personal autonomy to the extreme expressive individualism that we, sweep, uh, that we uh, swim in. Uh, this is a text that says that people need each other in some particular ways, and that's not incredibly popular. Uh, but secondly, and let's just be very honest, this is a text that has been used most often by conservatives to abuse, manipulate, and control women. And for that reason, many of us here probably have some hesitation when coming to this text. So here's what we want to do this morning. We just want to break down as clearly as possible what the text says. So I'm going to give you 
Just two different sections today. Two sections. The first section is two commands. We're going to talk about the two commands that are clearly given in the text. In the second section, we're going to talk about one metaphor that explains the why behind the text. So two commands, one metaphor. If you're taking notes, command number one, wives submit to your husbands. That's what the text says. Find that in verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Of course, this is where the controversy starts. The word submission has been used to justify all sorts of behavior by men in a marriage relationship, from domineering attitudes and actions to downright abuse. But we have to ask the question, what does this word submit mean? It would be easy for us to fill in what we've heard, what we think, what our current culture says, but we want to practice what we teach you at Mercy Hill over and over and over again, which is the best way to interpret Scripture is by the Scripture, is to see what else the Scripture says. And so if we're going to let the Scripture interpret itself, let's look at the passage Instead of just assuming we know the meaning because we watch some YouTube videos, or this is what our current culture says, or this is what 1950s culture says, all right? So if you look at the immediate context, let's back up and look at verse 21. Now, Pastor Mike walked through uh, the beginning part of chapter 5 last week, and he ended with this exhortation that we are to walk in wisdom. So those of you here, you might remember that. And if you remember, this whole section, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Ephesians, is Paul addressing the church. What does he say? Chapter 1, you have a new life in Christ. Chapter 2, this new life in Christ means a new identity, who you are. And because of your new life in Christ and your new identity in Christ, guess what else you have? you got a new community of faith that you belong to, a bunch of people who also have new lives and new identity in Christ, and you become one unit, one family, joined together. And then what he's done is unpack some new standards. He said, this is what the family of God in this new community, this is how we relate to each other. And in the very end of that section, what does he say in verse 21? He says that the church, all believers, should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So don't miss this. Right before we get to the explosive verse about wives, what's the command given to all believers, the church, at the way we interact with each other? That we are all mutually supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. That's the command given to all believers, suspected of all believers, regardless of their sex. And so whatever submission means, it means that we're all supposed to embrace it, practice it, and make it a priority in our relationships to each other in the church, which leads us to a very simple conclusion. In a marriage relationship, the wife is expected to treat her husband like followers of Jesus treat each other, right? Can we agree on that at least? Marriage relationship, what we can see clearly from the text, is wives are expected to treat their husbands like any follower of Jesus is expected to treat someone else. So what does that, though, mean? We haven't really defined or understood the word submission yet. I think Paul's already answered this question, but we've got to back up a little bit further. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, is what Adam preached on several weeks ago. Paul is again explaining how we live out our new life in Christ. More specifically, new rules for a new family. Check this out. Verse 25, chapter 4. Therefore, having put away all falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we're members of one another. 
Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather steal, but rather him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God forgave you in Christ. Now, it seems to me, from the context of Ephesians, going backwards to see what Paul's already told us about the family of God, that this attitude of submission most likely is exactly what he has already described in chapter 4. That inside the church, we are intended to yield our own interests, seeking our own good for the good of each other. And how do we do that? By speaking the truth to each other, We don't use our words or lies to gain advantage over each other, but we submit, we yield by telling the truth. Not sinning against each other in anger, but working out our conflicts. We humbly work out our differences. Not taking from each other, but sharing with each other. We don't put our own needs over doing what is right. We use our words to build each other up so we don't dominate each other, but we exalt or encourage each other. We don't grieve the Holy Spirit, but we look for how God is at work in each other's lives. We put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Verse 31. So inside the family of faith, when we submit to each other, that means we don't harbor bitterness towards each other. We don't store up punitive anger towards each other. We don't clamor or stir up a crowd of people against each other. We don't slander each other, and we don't act out of malice towards each other. Instead, what does he say? We're kind toward each other. We maintain tender, loving hearts toward each other, and we are quick to forgive each other. This is a picture of yielding to each other. In other words, the expectation out of a reverence for who Jesus is, is that we don't follow inside the church every internal impulse, but we put other people first. It's one of our marks of a disciple we talk about here at Mercy Hill. It's very simple. Disciple is a follower of Jesus, and we say that disciples say others come first. So he's teaching Ephesians chapter 4. So then what does submission look like for a wife? Chapter 4 describes what it looks like for the church. This is the way that we yield or submit or treat each other. What does it look like for a wife in a marriage relationship? Now, again, we could fill this phrase with what we think it means culturally. We could do like leave it to beaver, dinner on the table at 6, who pays the bills. We could do all of that stuff. Or we could, if you watch the Duggar documentary, we could go all Bill Gothard and do the umbrella illustration, which is a little silly. I'll show you that in a second. Or we can look at the context of Ephesians and conclude that wives in a marriage relationship as representatives of the church should behave towards their husbands in the same way that the church is is expected to behave towards each other. Which would mean that Paul is commanding wives to act in their marriages in the same way that he has commanded the church to act in the church. 
So, wives, here's what this means. Speaking the truth to your husband. Chapter 4. Don't sin against your husband in anger, but work out your conflicts. Chapter 4, verse 26 to 27. Don't take from the relationship, but share all things. Use your words to build your husband up. Put away in your marriage relationship bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice. Don't harbor bitterness towards your husband. Don't stir up punitive anger towards your husband. Uh, Yes and amen, right? Don't clamor against each other. Don't slander. Don't speak ill of your husband to ruin his reputation. And don't act out of malice. Instead, be marked in your marriage relationship by kindness, gentleness, tenderness, a loving heart, and a quickness to forgive. Then he says this last phrase in verse 22, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, I do not think this phrase means to submit to your husband as if he is the Lord, right? It's not like in the marriage relationship uh, that the wife does not have equal access to God the Father, And it's not like, we know this from the scripture, that she needs her husband to mediate her relationship. We are Protestants for crying out loud. Right? No one mediates our relationship with God except for Jesus and Jesus alone. So the picture here is not that the husband is the Lord's general and he's got some specific and special information about the marching orders for the family and nobody knows what to do unless the husband speaks. Instead, I think he's saying that this act of submission is actually an act of worship. That it shows the priority of Jesus in your life. And that it is independent of the worthiness of your husband. This is a basic Christian ethic. Treating people based on Jesus' treatment of us and not how the other person has treated us is the foundation of why we do what we do. And so wives don't use their, hus- their words to tear their husbands down. Why? Because Jesus used his words to build others up. And so wives don't store up wrath against their husband. Why? Because God didn't store up his wrath against you. But he poured it out completely on his son on the cross. So wives are quick to forgive. Why? Because they've been forgiven by Christ. Does this make sense? It is a gospel-driven ethic inside of our marriages. All right, we're going to skip verses 23 and 24. We're coming back, okay? Everybody take a deep breath. Second command. First one, wives submit to your husbands. What does it look like? I think it looks like Ephesians chapter 4. I think that's what he told us. Number two, husbands love your wives. This is verse 25. Husband loves, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If the expectation is that wives should treat their husbands in the same manner that is expected of all Christian relationships, then before we even get to husbands loving their wives, we still have verse 21, mutual submission in the family of God. So what's the expectation for husbands? That all of Ephesians chapter 4 and chapter 5 applies to husbands as well. So let's be clear before we dive into what does this phrase mean. Let's make sure we understand this. As a follower of Jesus, husbands are expected to speak the truth and love to their wives. You don't get a pass. 
To not sin against their wives in anger, but work out conflict. Not take from the relationship, but share. Husbands are expected to build their wives up with their words. Husbands are also expected, just as a follower of Jesus, to put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, malice, and slander. And to act with kindness, gentleness, tenderness, and willingness to quickly forgive. Make sense? And then on top of that, Paul says, husbands, you should love your wives. The word there is agape. It's the way that God loves. So husbands are to love unconditionally, steadfastly, unfailingly, and with faithfulness to the very end of the age. Husbands are commanded to love unconditionally to be a steadfast source of love in their homes, to lead their homes relentlessly in extending grace and mercy and compassion to their wives, to be faithful at all times and in all situations to their wives, and to love in a particular way. Verse 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Or in other words, he says the husband's love for his wife should be in the same manner as the way that Jesus loves his church. Now, let's just be honest for a second. If we're going to believe Ephesians chapter 5, who so far has gotten the better deal? Do you hear what he just said? Husbands, instead of domineering your wives, actually you're supposed to love your wife in the same way Christ loves his church. So how did Jesus love us? Well, let's remember the context of Rome, of, uh, of Ephesians. We've already studied this, right? Ephesians chapter 1. What do we find out? That God has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We found out that God chose us before the foundation of the world, that God adopted us into his family, that God redeemed us through Christ, bought us freedom from slavery and sin. Ephesians chapter 2, that God loved us despite our sin, poured out the riches of his grace on us, extended to us immeasurable kindness, brought us in peace, into a peaceful relationship with God the Father. And then in this very verse, 525, he says that Jesus did what? Gave himself up for us, that he sacrificed his life. So what can we conclude about the husband's role in, a, in the marriage? We love the way Jesus did. Providing what our wives need, choosing our wives over and over again, loving our wives despite their shortcomings, sins, or faults, making it a priority to make sure that your wife is alive and flourishing, treating her with grace, not the letter of the law, that you are not demanding or domineering. Is this the way that Christ loved us? That husbands are expected to show their wives immeasurable kindness, not to be harsh or heavy-handed and strives to have a household of peace not marked by conflict. And ultimately, the call for the husband is to love his wife to the point of sacrifice, even if it means death. That is the command that Paul gives to husbands and wives. Then he doubled down, doubles down in verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. I love that phrase. Nourishes and cherishes. 
which means the responsibility of the husbands is to lead their families in such a way that people feel nourished and cherished. That your wife knows that she is your treasured possession and she is well supplied with everything she needs, not just to function in this life, but to pursue Jesus. Now, does this mean that wives don't have to love their husbands? They get an out? It's just kind of this respect, submission thing we don't have to love? People say dumb things just because they don't read the text. What did Mike tell you last week? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. The whole church is expected to what? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Why? Verse 2, command, walk in love. Why? We're supposed to love. Why? As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. It's almost the same exact words, right? It's almost the same exact phrase as Ephesians 5, verse 25. So the expectation then in the household is that husbands and wives will treat each other like believers of Jesus treat each other. Like a brand new shirt. Because, I mean, there's like a whole list of things to do, and we hadn't talked about who does the dishes yet. And we hadn't figured out who pays the bills. We hadn't talked about women can work outside the home. I'm, I'm pretty sure that as a believer, follower of Jesus, you were expected to mutually submit to other believers, yield to them, put other people first. And you're expected to walk in love just as Christ loved you. And in the home, husbands are expected to lead the way in loving their wives in a way that cherishes and nourishes her and reflects the very goodness of Jesus. And wives are expected to walk in submission. And by that, what we mean is yielding, is responding by putting other people first. So why? Why do we have this command? Why, these commands? Why are we talking about this? Why does Paul feel like it is so important to particularly address the marriage relationship when really all of these commands have already been given earlier in chapters 4 and 5? Why? We did two commands. The reason why is because of one metaphor. Check it out, verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul gives a definition of marriage here. as a distinct union between a man and a woman united together as one. This is the same definition that we find in Genesis chapter 1. It's the same definition that Jesus uses in Matthew 19 when he is questioned about the lifelong nature of the marriage relationship. Jesus says here what Paul says here, what Moses wrote thousands of years before. Marriage is a union. The uniting of two lives is one. Man and a woman coming together. Why? Check this out, verse 32. This mystery, he says, is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Here's the mind-blowing part of this passage. This is the why behind all of it. Paul says, because there's been a mystery, and now the mystery is made known or made evident, and it is profound. What's he talking about? He is saying that in Genesis chapter 1, when God created marriage, Adam and Eve put them together as one flesh. 
He's saying that God did that not primarily because they needed each other and not primarily because there was romance in the air and not primarily for marriage to be the ultimate thing in all of creation. That he did that thousands and thousands of years ago so that here and now we could understand the way that God loves us through his son, Jesus. That marriage is a real life metaphor pointing us to a much deeper, unbelievable reality. The profound mystery of marriage is that from the very beginning, God intended for marriage to be about more than just uniting two lives as one, more than about establishing families, more than about just mutual love and commitment. God created marriage as a gift and gave it to his people to teach us about Jesus. And let's remember the context of Ephesians more specifically to teach us about our union with Christ. How many times have we used that phrase so far in this series? Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, over and over again. What's the phrase we see? In him, in Christ, in the beloved, in him, in him, in him. And here's what we said. That when we come to know Jesus, we are joined, united with Christ, so that when God sees us, he sees Jesus. And here's what God knew thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, before the, even the foundation of the world, here's what God knew. You and I weren't going to understand it. That we were going to have trouble with that concept sitting in our hearts. So God created the institution of marriage as a metaphor so somebody like me could stand in front of you one day and go, you want to understand what it means to be united as one in Christ? Look at marriage. That gets us pretty close. Now, how mind-blowing is that? That the entire thing for all of human history, has been about pointing you and me to something much bigger, something much deeper, something much grander, God's love for us. And how God, in his infinite mercy, was going to send his son Jesus to redeem us, to rescue us, that Jesus was going to die on the cross for us, in our place for our sins, that Jesus was going to resurrect from the dead, and the way that we would understand how to be saved is through this metaphor of being united as one with Christ. So from the beginning of time, God intended marriage to be a sign that points to the gospel. And the truth is, uh, most people don't get this. Most people, maybe like some of us here today, married or single, believe that marriage is a cure designed to save us from loneliness or insecurity or an unsatisfying life. And then many of us are brokenhearted when it doesn't work out. Maybe when we don't get married, or maybe when we feel like we married the wrong person, our expectations are obliterated. We realize marriage can't save us. And so when marriage can't cure us, then we decide it must be some sort of fault with the institution or the person or some sort of shortcoming. But I want to be very clear. The Bible doesn't teach you that marriage is a cure. Marriage teaches you. It was a signpost that points you to the cure. That should be like a big neon sign saying, 
If you want to be cured of what ails you, it's this way. His name is Jesus. And that's the mystery. Throughout of all human history, God's intention for marriage is and always has been more. The marital bliss, God has been using marriage throughout all of history to show us how he loves and cherishes his people through his son, Jesus. It's a sacred signpost that points him back to him. When we were in Central Asia, we got stuck for a couple of days in Istanbul. Some of you guys know this already. And um, uh, I don't know if you've tried to navigate an airport in a country where uh, English is not the primary language, uh, but it's uh, not easy. And uh, Michael Brooks was amazing on this trip, making sure we got in the right place at the right time. Uh, but this task was beyond even his amazing skills. And so the airline was supposed to put us up in a hotel. And so you know what we did for hours? Tried to find the hotel desk where we were supposed to be. Because the people at the help desk said, we don't do that. You got to go to the desk. And I thought, well, how do we get there? How do we get there? How do we get there? We don't know. And so we're following directions and the best we can. And we wander around and we go outside and we go inside. And we go outside and we go inside. We go this way. We go that way until we find it. You know what we needed? Like some signs in English would be really awesome. You know what I mean? Like, hey, what you're looking for is over here. Marriage is a signpost pointing us in the direction of Christ. That's why it's important. So let's quickly go back to 23 and 24. Because I know this headship thing is what gets everybody all twisted up, right? For the husband, he says in verse 23, is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now the church submits to Christ. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything in their husbands. The idea, of, the idea of male headship in the home is an explosive issue. But if we're going to understand it, how do we understand it? By thinking it through in terms of the metaphor, right? And so we have to ask the question, how is Christ the head of the church? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul says that he, that's God, put all things under his feet and gave to him, that's Jesus, as a head over all things his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what did Paul say already earlier? God, because of what Jesus did on his, his death and his death and resurrection, has already put Jesus in charge of everything. He is the head. He's in charge. He is Lord. All authority belongs to him. Well, let's ask the question, how did he get it? Ephesians chapter 2 answers that question. Verse 5, have this mind, Paul says, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What did Paul just tell us? Jesus is the head over all precisely because of what? Because he humbled himself, because he became a servant, because he obeyed even to the point of death. Jesus' headship over the church does not look like a general barking orders to his troops. 
Jesus' headship over the church does not look like a demanding boss forcing his employees to work overtime without pay. Jesus' headship over the church does not look like a husband requiring his wife to have dinner on the table at six and his newspaper and coffee in his favorite chair first thing in the morning. That's simply not how Jesus leads. Instead, it is servant leadership. Jesus is the head of the church precisely because he made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, humbled himself, and obeyed to the point of death. So you know what male headship is? Male headship in the home is not about domineering leadership, but about servant leadership. This idea does not give husbands the permission to treat their wives poorly, like slaves or second-class citizens. This is male chauvinism parading as complementarianism. Let me define a term for you. Complementarianism is a belief that we hold here at Mercy Hill. It's based on two tenets. Number one, that all people, men and women, are created in God's image and equal in value and worth. And number two, that men and women are created differently. They have different roles in the home and in the church. That doesn't mean there's no overlap. It just means men and women are different. And we got a lot of jokers who claim to be complementarians because they run to defend tenant number two with all that they have, and in doing so, violate tenant number one, and that is ridiculous. Every single person, male or female, is created in the very image of God and deserves every single bit of honor, dignity, and respect. Everyone. So if you came in today... You watched a bunch of Doug Wilson videos on YouTube to get hyped up this morning. You're ready to talk about who makes sandwiches and whatever else. Let me just submit to you, don't violate a clear teaching of Scripture all the way from Genesis chapter 1, pull all the way through to Revelation to get to defend your crazy position you saw on YouTube. If, if leadership in your home, the way you treat your wife, husband, does not look like Jesus' interaction with women in Scripture, you're doing it wrong. So you probably need to slow down and ask, is this the way Jesus treated the woman at the well? Is this the way Jesus interacted with a Syrophoenician woman? Is this something he would say to Mary or Martha? And if not you might want to stop talking. Because the purpose of your marriage is to be a signpost that points to the good news of Jesus, to God's unfailing love for his people. That's the point. So what do I do with this, Brandon? How do I respond today besides writing some angry emails or whatever else you guys got? (laughs) Quickly, three things. First, I'm going to encourage you to think biblically about your marriage. This is hard for us, and let me tell you why this is hard. Uh, Because we talk about this idea of conservative versus liberal, or conservative versus progressive, and politics and biblical interpretation get all jumbled together. So let me be very clear. Being a conservative interpreter of the Bible 
means that the Bible takes precedence over your experience and that the scriptures speak clearly for themselves and they don't need us to fix them. And so to treat the Bible conservatively is to not go beyond what the Bible says. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean we don't have opinions. That doesn't mean we don't, we don't make decisions. That means we don't use the force of the scripture to talk clearly about things the Bible simply doesn't talk clearly about. Here's what this means. It is very possible to be incredibly politically and socially conservative in your marriage and be, when it comes to biblical interpretation, a flaming liberal. Because your view on this passage is more influenced by 1950s American culture or 2020s American culture. Does that make sense? And at the point that it's more influenced by those cultural considerations than it is what the scripture says, that is progressive biblical interpretation. No matter how socially conservative the end result might be. Do you understand? So the call is to think biblically about this. Furthermore, if thinking biblically about this means that marriage is not the end of itself, does that make sense? That it serves a greater purpose, then thinking biblically about this text means we don't treat marriage like it's ultimate in our churches. It is simply not. Is it important? Yes. Is it a gift from God? Yes. Is it a means to declare the goodness of God? Yes. Is it ultimate? No. Which means in our churches, we have to be creating room for people who are single or divorced or widows or widowers. Why? Because marriage isn't ultimate here. Jesus is ultimate here. And so we treat each other, Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5, with honor and grace and love and kindness and tenderness. And everybody belongs to this family regardless of their marital status. This would include men and women who might experience same-sex attraction but in walking out the repentance and faith to Jesus, have chosen to live celibate lives. You know where they belong? Here. And you know how they are treated? Like we treat every other follower of Jesus incorporated into a loving faith family. Marriage is not the ultimate, and it's not a cure. And if it's not a cure for your loneliness, it certainly might not be a cure for someone's same-sex attraction. I'm starting to soapbox. Thinking biblically about this means something for people who are single as well, especially some of you single guys here. we got a bunch. This means that your possible future wife will not save you. That marriage is not an end of itself for you. And so let me just encourage you. If marriage is not a destination, it's just a gift that God may give you or may not give you, then get busy learning how to be a servant leader because that's what you're going to need to know when you enter into your marriage relationship. And if you don't get married, guess what? You needed it anyway. So this is dad, Pastor Brandon for a second, some younger guys. Stop complaining about the lack of women or the lack of whatever or how the date didn't work out. Stop, stop, stop. 
I care about your feelings, but not that much. Get busy becoming a man or woman too, but I don't hear complaining from women nearly as often, mostly dudes, of character who embodies Ephesians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 5. And let's not forget, Ephesians chapter 5, one of the commands is walk in wisdom. So if you want to prepare yourself for marriage, stop being foolish. Walk in wisdom. So we need to think biblically about it. Secondly, we need to love sacrificially in our marriages. Our marriages should be full to the brim and overflowing with grace and mercy and kindness. Why? Because we've already seen in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, God gives freely, abundantly his grace and mercy and kindness to us. So our marriages should be marked by sacrificial, unbelievable love for each other. Not cheap, romantic, rom-com, whatever Ryan Reynolds has been in lately with whoever. But remember agape. Faithful, steadfast, sacrificial, to the end, love. And Ephesians chapter 4. Our church should be the same. A family of faith where people experience sacrificial love. Which means for some of our, uh, you guys who are married, uh, the your next step is actually to invite some people who aren't into your family. To love sacrificially as a marriage unit, someone who maybe doesn't have that sort of connection right now. So we got to think biblically. Two, we got to love sacrificially. And three, live missionally. The point of marriage is to point to Jesus. Right? Uh, which means... For those of you who are married, God in his sovereignty put you together with your spouse for a purpose bigger than just your own personal happiness. But so that other people around you could see. This is the way Jesus loves his church. Husbands, this is why God gave you a wife. So that your coworkers. Your neighbors could see tangibly an, an imperfect, right? Nobody's perfect here. An imperfect but glorious example. This is the way Jesus loves his church. So we got to think missionally, which again means if nobody sees the good stuff in your marriage, then there's no sign pointing to Jesus. That's why the Bible places extreme importance on hospitality, Right? That means you got to be with, with people, you and your spouse, inviting them in to see. Man, we got to think missionally about our marriages. Does that make sense? Everybody good with that? Man, think biblically. Don't get caught up in cultural stuff, right? Love sacrificially. Think missionally. Can we do that? All right. Angry emails. Let's address that real quick. Brandon at mercyhill.com. All right? Don't get angry over lunch. All right? 
Nobody said this but me, all right? So if you get fired up and you want to talk to your neighbor about it or your friend about it or whatever, that's fine. Just go ahead and send me the email. It's going to be great, all right? If you got some questions, brandonemergencyhill.com. Uh, if you have, uh, if, if your complaint or email is going to have a lot of language in it, that's fine. Just go ahead and send that to Mike at mercyhill.com. I'm just kidding. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to the Mercy Hill Church podcast. To keep up with the life of Mercy Hill Church, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We believe the Christian life is best experienced in community. If you're in our area, we'd love for you to join us. If not, we'd love to help you get plugged into a local church near you. Have a great week.